So a while back, Jessica and I watched this documentary on the pygmy people in Africa. And they're a group of people who live in the Congo, and it, it really just blew our minds. We saw how they lived, kind of the mud huts they lived in, and, you know, in the middle of the jungle. For all, you know, we would definitely describe it as being in the middle of nowhere. And one little boy was running around about naked, carrying a knife the size of him, trying to chop down trees. Where I get nervous if my kids play with a butter knife at a restaurant, anybody else? You know, worried about what's going to happen. And, you know, I wouldn't call them poor. I would say they don't have any regard for money the way we do. They don't use the things we use. They're, they don't even, they're not even in tune to what's out here. And as we sat in the couch in the air conditioning watching our TV, we just realized and thought about how much we take things for granted. I mean, things we don't even mean we take for granted, especially in the 21st century. You could just assume, well, everybody has the internet. Everybody has a car. Everybody has air conditioning. And looking at these people living in Africa, we realize, well, that's just not even true at all. Well, we can all take simple things for granted, can't we? we I mean, think about plumbing. Plumbing was probably amazing at one point, indoor plumbing. But how many of us, when a guest comes over, we take them to our bathroom saying, hey, check this thing out. Look at, look at, look at this. This is, no, we take it for granted. But did you know indoor plumbing and plumbers have saved more lives than all medical advancement? So shake a plumber's hand next time you meet one, right? So it's, we take things for granted. And that's what I want to talk about today because one of the things we can easily take for granted when it comes to our faith is the Lord's Supper. When we come together to take communion, because in our church especially, we take it once a month. So it become, can become real, uh, ritualistic, which is, well, we know we take it. Yeah, there's that thing. It's tacked on the end of the service. Or, you know, we may be too busy, so as soon as that communion time hits, we're going to go ahead and bust out the back of the door to make sure we're at the restaurant first. Communion's one of those things... Everybody's like, should I laugh or not laugh? It actually happens, so I don't know how, what you should do with it. It happens. But it reminds me that we take this for granted. We miss the importance of it. You see, we have two ordinances in the church that we are commanded to do, and one of them's the Lord's Supper. The other is what? Baptism. Y'all know way better than the first service. They, not, not too many of them were sure what that was. But so we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are the two things that like all Christians' churches actually agree upon. And ordinances are just things we do in obedience to our faith in, in Jesus Christ. And so today the goal is simply to talk about the Lord's Supper, to be reminded of it, to be refreshed of it, and hopefully, and just hopefully before you take it, maybe you'll work what's in your heart. Maybe come at it with an open mind and an open heart and just remember of how big of a deal what happened that night and the next day, how big of a deal it really, really was. You see, it's on this night that Jesus puts this in a place. He would be arrested, handed over to the authorities, falsely convicted, and of course the next day hung on a cross. Jesus told his disciples several times that he was going to die and he would rise, and they didn't understand it just like we wouldn't. They, they didn't compute of how the Messiah would actually die. And so although he's prepared them for it, they haven't really understood it yet. He's doing it again one more time, but in a very, very different way. If you have your scriptures with you, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't, it'll be back here on the screen. Well, there it is right there, and you can follow along with us. 
says this, On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So there's two things here we just need to understand. We have the festival of unleavened bread and then, of course, Passover. You see, the festival of the unleavened bread was a week-long festival or, or party that the Jewish people would have where they couldn't eat anything with yeast in it, and they would remember God bringing them out of Egypt. And Passover was that special night, well, we'll talk about it here in a second, where they were saved by the blood of the Lamb. And it's at this meal and what Jesus says where everything should come crashing together that we've learned so far in the story. Remember at the beginning of the Bible, we see God created a little bit after that. We see God picked one man to form an entire nation through. Who was that? Abraham, right? So God chose Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to bless all peoples through you. We're going to create a nation through you. And so we see that happening. We see Abraham, some of his descendants. Then we get to the story of Jacob, uh, excuse me, Joseph. And it gets pretty crazy, his life. But we say he becomes in a prominent position of power and All the Israelites end up moving to Egypt and living under uh, the largest nation of the time, most powerful nation. And we see this nation of Israel just grow and blossom. Well, several generations later, the the next generation of Egyptians are like, hey, there are too many of them for us. The Israelites could take us out. So instead of welcoming these foreigners, they oppress them. They use them as slaves and start making them do all the hard labor. And so the people of God, uh, Israelites start crying out to God, save us. And wouldn't you know he does? God sends whom? Y'all know this one. Who is it? Moses, right. Remember Moses goes, let my people go. Pharaoh wouldn't listen. We see a lot of different plagues happen. But then Pharaoh comes to him with the last one and says, hey, listen, Pharaoh, you got to let my people go or something really bad's going to happen. All the firstborn are going to be killed if you don't let the Israelites go. You see, Pharaoh wanted to hold on to God's people. God said, no, you need to let them go. Pharaoh was fighting against God. It's never a good position to be in, just to let you know. And so Pharaoh said no. And so they were instructed to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood, put it on their doorpost, consume the lamb as a meal, and that night they would be passed over from the firstborn dying. You remember that? Passover stands for literally being passed over, right? It's good when the title actually makes sense, right? And so they literally were passed over. And so this is where they celebrate that. This is where they remember that, that God delivered them, that God redeemed them. And they celebrate that God brought them out of slavery by the blood of the Lamb. And so this festival of unleavened bread and Passover, I mean, this was extremely important to them. It wasn't just a personal family thing. This was a national holiday, kind of like the 4th of July where we celebrate the beginning of our nation. This was something actually way more important but very similar. We remember where we were redeemed, where we were rescued. And to this day, Jewish people still celebrate the Passover meal. They still do this. They have special food like bitter herbs that represent the hardships they faced uh, through the wandering. There's also certain customs, particular words, that date back thousands of years. So this Passover thing is a big deal, and it still happens. And it's at this time that Jesus' disciples are saying, hey, where do you want to go and celebrate this at? Where do we want to eat this meal? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, 
The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So Jesus tells them to find a certain somebody. They prepared the place for them to have this meal together. It says, when even came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. So Jesus changes the mood of this meal where this is supposed to be a time they come together and celebrate, celebrate God's redemption and deliverance. The mood changes because Jesus predicts that one of them is going to betray him. And they know by now that Jesus has been right every single time. He said some stuff they didn't particularly care for. He's done some things they didn't particularly care for. But anytime he's guessing somebody's moods or thoughts or actions or motives, I mean, he's always right. And so they're sitting here wondering, is it me? Jesus' words at this very first Lord's Supper would have caused them to investigate, is it me, Lord? Surely I'm not the one. And says they were greatly distressed because they're wondering, who could this be? They're very saddened. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand in this bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So he lets them know, hey, they've all dipped their hand in the bowl, so that really didn't help, but it's kind of the one, so it's like, yes, the person is here who's betrayed me, but I'm just letting you know, I'm letting you betray or know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to the cross like what has been written about me, meaning you're not causing this, you think you're doing something, but something else much bigger is happening, but oh, by the way, woe to you who's betrayed me anyways. This is one of those times in Scripture we see where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility come crashing together, and we just see the tension there. Judas thought he was causing something, but look at what it says in Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we, are considered, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we see Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. He's, he's having this punishment. We're going to talk about that in a second. But all that's coming upon him. So Jesus said, hey, I'm going like it's written. But oh, by the way, woe to the person who has done this. Then Judas, the one who betrayed him, said, surely... You don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answers, well, you have said so. You see, G Judas is acting like everybody else. Surely, Jesus, not me. You're saying you're not fooling anybody, Judas. And we should probably stop here for a second and think about Judas. What was going on? Why would he do this? Judas knew Jesus was from God. He had to have been. I mean, he's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on water. He's healed the blind. Oh, there was that Lazarus thing where he raised someone from the dead. Judas has seen Jesus do some amazing things. But you see, they were expecting a military leader. They wanted someone to conquer their enemies to, so they could be this big nation once again, independent from everybody else. And they've been oppressed by the Romans. 
So they want this Messiah, this kingly leader to come and redeem them, lead them to be those people, but Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do. They have their expectations. Here's how the Messiah needs to act. Here's what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. They expected him to do great things, but it looked very differently. You see, Judas is trying to force Jesus' hand. One of two things is going to happen by him turning it in. Judas is going to force Jesus to come out and be that mighty leader. If everybody's coming after him with clubs and swords, Jesus is going to have to step up and fight him off. They could say, finally, we're in power. Finally, we could sit at the left and the right like we wanted to. Or, well, Jesus will be captured and killed and be proven well, not to be the Messiah after all. Judas probably wasn't expecting the third option. You see, Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. He had his own agenda. He wanted him to act a certain way. And what I find so fascinating is Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Judas knew what he was going to do. Jesus lets him know in the middle of it, but he doesn't stop Judas from doing it. We may need to think about that in our lives, that we can be about to make a colossal mistake. It doesn't mean God's not going to intervene. He'll let you do what you think you need to do. But yet, when we come to this table, we've got to remember we're not going to stop him from doing what he has come to do either. Judas had his own plan. It didn't work out. And when we come to this table, just like the very first Lord's Supper, Jesus prompted them to look inside their lives. And when you come to the table, do you have your own agenda for Jesus? Do you have your own expectations of what he needs to do and how he needs to behave and what he needs to do for you? Do you come to him with, here's your marching orders? Or do we come to him in full submission saying, not my will but yours? See, the very first Lord's Supper prompted them to investigate their lives, and he's about to tell them why. I'm about to tell you why. Why you want to submit your plans for his. Look at what he does. He tells us. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body. So Jesus took the unleavened bread. They would have been eating during this celebration. And the bread would have reminded them how quickly they had to leave, how they didn't have enough food to prepare. Remember, God had to send them bread. So this meal would have represented how they had to leave Egypt in haste and eat this bread for their meal. And then we see Jesus takes it and twists. He reinterprets it. Now he says, take this bread and this is my body. He's pointing them, of course, to the body that will be broken on the cross. Verse 27, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. During this Passover meal, there had been four cups of wine, each representing a different part and linked to a different section of the Exodus story of God redeeming his people. So he's taking one of those that they would have already been using, and he says, hold on, but this time, this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. You see, Jesus is saying that his death and his blood will be central to the new covenant, will be central to this new thing, this new relationship between God and his people. And he's referring to two things that we may just look over, but let's expound on them. First, Jesus talks about there being a new covenant. 
Remember, we've learned in the story, and you probably learned this maybe when you were younger. After they were out of Egypt, remember, led out of Egypt by Moses, they went to the mountain, they were given the Ten Commandments and the Covenant. Remember, God says, you will be my people, I will be your God, you will be blessed if you obey me, but cursed if you disobey me. It was a contract based on relationship, a covenant. So that's what happened after Passover. Jesus is saying there's a new covenant coming. Something different is happening here. And he says, because it's blood being poured out for many. And when we hear that term, come on, let's be honest, it bothers us. We start talking about blood. We're like, I, blood? Why would blood have to be poured out? That doesn't even make any sense. But they're Jewish. And you've just spent 21 weeks reading about the scriptures. The blood poured out for many is alluding to the Day of Atonement, something they were extremely familiar with. The day where the high priest would make a sacrifice for the entire nation, the blood was needed. And so Jesus is linking what he's doing to this Passover event, but also to the Day of Atonement where blood is poured out for the, what Jesus says, for the forgiveness of sins. What may sound different to us, not to them. This was normal. They still had it. So Jesus is taking their big days, their important days, saying, yeah, this is, this is happening through me. You see, on the cross, well, here's what's happening. Jesus took this sacred meal that reminded them of God delivering from um, slavery of bondage and how he's rescued them, he's taken it and reinterpreted it around himself. And to the Jewish person, this should have and would have been extremely offensive. God initiated this. God put this in place. Who can come down and reinterpret something that God has put into place? Ah, but God can. So we see the deity of Christ coming in all this. Christ is coming. He's changing things. It's as if all of that stuff that they've learned about was pointing to something different. And we know enough about the disciples that we can just picture them sitting there. We can picture Peter going, oh, here he goes again, talking about dying. Come on, Jesus. It's, we've talked about this. It's not going to happen. We can see Thomas ignoring, ready to answer, like, hold on, Jesus, this doesn't make sense. I have some questions for you. All right, this, these aren't linking together well. And we can see Judas frozen in fear going, hold on, hold on. How does he know it's me? Who told on me? We can see all the different things running through their mind. And like them, we can be sitting here thinking about all the other stuff we have to do today. Or we can be so caught up with our expectations of what Jesus needs to do of what Jesus should do, we can get so caught up with the words and language that we miss what's happening here. Or even worse, we dismiss what Jesus is saying. But if we lean in and allow Jesus to speak here, this should, this should set your heart free. This should cause some emotion. This should cause you to go, man, what amazing Savior we have. Because everything we've learned about the New Old Testament, I know some of us are like, man, we were in there for a long time. But here's why, because every single thing you learn should come crashing together at this moment. You see, the great problem in Scripture we learned about was sin. That humans were separated from God because of sin. We have a broken relationship because of it. 
and sin had to be dealt with. We've seen all throughout the Old Testament how it's run rampant and how it hasn't worked out. But so through Jesus, humans are responsible for it. That's clear. But through Jesus, we see God taking responsibility for sin. That should blow our mind and dealing with it on the cross. And through that, Jesus has put in a new covenant, a new way to access God, a new relationship now based upon his works. And we are called to believe because he has atoned or he has made amends for all of our sins by dying. You see, it's only through the death of Jesus Christ that our sins can be forgiven because of what he's done and how it was accomplished. You see, this within the Passover context and the Day of Atonement, all of that comes rushing together, you will actually see Jesus isn't just kicking around having some bread and some wine. He's saying, I'm about to do something groundbreaking and world-changing. I'm doing something for the forgiveness of sins. You see, his blood is being poured out. They are being atoned for. These aren't new ideas. It's as if the Old Testament has been pointing to this day the whole time. Something different's happening. Something different's coming. You see, through Jesus, through him offering himself as our sacrifice, our sins can be forgiving. The sin problem that run rampant has been dealt with. And the New Testament writers like the Apostle Paul, they pick up on this and the implications of it. And it's amazing when you see that the basis, Jesus says, that the sins are forgiven. He's offering himself as that sacrifice. But by that, the different things that happen is groundbreaking. All sorts of stuff. You see, if through the blood of Christ our sins have been forgiven or can be forgiven, that means that the wrath that all sinners deserved have been removed from us if sin has been removed. And that means we are, if we're forgiven, we now stand justified before God through Jesus Christ. Which means Christ substituted himself for us. He took our place on the cross. What we deserve, he took. And if sin was the problem and sin separated us, because of the cross, we have now been reconciled to God because of Jesus. That relationship has been fixed. And if sin is bondage, a type of slavery, that means we have now been redeemed because our sins have been forgiven. That's what Jesus is saying. Those are the implications that surround the cross because his body was broken and the blood was poured out. You see, this is really important. Pay attention if you zoned out. I know it's kind of heavy today. That is why there can be no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus is saying, he's not just saying, well, I'm kind of doing some good things like everybody else. He's saying, no, I'm pouring my blood out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is claiming to be atoning for our sins. Nobody else claims that, not even close. He's claiming to dying in our place. This is exclusive. No other religion system, no other thought comes close to touching what Jesus is saying he's doing. He's not just going to the cross to show an example. He's going to the cross to do something. Scott McKnight says this. He says, the massive dimension of sin 
distorted in four directions with God, with self, with others in the world, they are all met by a massive resolution of sin in Christ Jesus centered as it is on the cross. Meaning the problem of all those things come rushing together and fixed through Jesus. I love it. He says this. Another, it's pretty long, but the quote's up here. He says, I suggest that we see the achievement of the cross in three expressions. That Jesus dies with us, entering into our evil and sin and suffering to subvert it and create a new way. That Jesus dies instead of us. He enters into our sin, our wrath, our death. And Jesus dies for us. His death forgives our sin, declares us right, absorbs the wrath of God against us, and creates new life where there was once only death. You see, we live in a time where we want to minimize sin. We don't want to talk about it. But you see, if we minimize sin, we minimize the cross. You can't have them both. If sin isn't a big deal, then the cross isn't a big deal. But if sin is a big deal, then the cross is an even bigger deal because it conquered it. You see, we don't talk about sin to make you feel terrible. We talk about sin to elevate Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and for you. And we live in a time where people want to think that, well, all paths will lead to God. I mean, everybody's pretty much saying the same thing. There's some good morals, some good values. I mean, we're all pretty much going to the same place to which what Jesus is claiming, what's he saying is completely impossible. He's saying, I am because I'm atoning. No other system saying the man has given himself up as a sacrifice to atone for your sins. So there cannot be, if sin is the problem and forgiveness only comes through him, the link is, then we can only be forgiven through that massive problem through Jesus Christ. The cross is a big deal. You see, on the cross, Jesus saved us from sin. But on the cross, Jesus saved us for his purposes. So we are now restored and redeemed and rescued to where we can be his image bearers. We can reflect his goodness and glory into this world. We're saved from sin, but we're saved for his purposes, which means we can live and embrace what it means to be truly human. We, we don't have to carry on that guilt and that shame and all that stuff we want to hold on to. We can release it at the cross. We can understand that in Christ there is no condemnation, Paul says. We can experience something so amazing if we truly embrace what Christ has done for us. And if it sounds too good to be true, disciples, they don't understand what's going on. Jesus says, well, I tell you all not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is saying, you don't understand this. I'm going to go to the cross, but I'm going to see you again. You see, he would see them again. Three days later, after the cross, he would rise from a tomb. We're going to talk all about that next week. You see, that's a very important part, is when we learn about what Jesus has done, when we see what he's done on the cross, the reason why we believe him is not just because it, it, we just read about it, it's because if someone can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, we tend to believe everything they say. And we believed he's done that. And so when we read Jesus' message, if you leave here with nothing else, understand 
Jesus doesn't claim to just be another guy. He's claiming to do something extraordinary. To die for you and for me on the cross. For the forgiveness of our sins. There can be no other way. You see, because on the cross, Jesus died with us. Jesus died instead of us, and Jesus died for us. And we celebrate this meal today. To remember not only what he has done on the cross, but we celebrate because we believe we're going to see him again. We believe he's going to return, and we will share in that fellowship with him because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so this morning, as we come to the table, I ask you not to take it for granted. Let's remember that it's because of what Jesus has done that your sins have been forgiven. That your relationship has been restored with God. We have a God that wants a personal relationship with you and I. He wants to use you for his glory. And you can talk to him and fellowship with him because of our great mediator, Jesus Christ. So as you come today, remember the sins that's been forgiven. And if we think about that and we think about the sins, that should remind us of how united we need to be as a church. Because did you know we all start in the same place? Did you all know we're broken sinners in desperate need of a Savior? And if that's our starting point, we see how the cross unites us together. That we're people in desperate need of a Savior coming together to work this life out, live this life out together through Jesus Christ. And as we come to the table, lastly, we need to remember how devastating sin really is. We live in the day, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. I want to read a book about five ways to improve X, Y, or Z. I don't mind self-help. Some of it can be pretty beneficial. But if we're not offering people the cross, all that other stuff is pointless. It starts with the cross. It starts with Christ. We have to be redeemed and rescued. And then we can learn some great principles to work through life. So communion, the Lord's Supper, should remind us of the urgency to share the gospel. That what Jesus has done is the only way that we need to get serious about telling other people and sharing it. So we're going to go to the table here in a minute. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give us about, I don't know, some time to investigate and pray. And I don't know what the Lord has prompted on your heart or what you got going on, but, but I ask you to deal with it. As Jesus calls them to investigate their lives. Paul also tells us to investigate our lives. To make sure we're not coming to this table in an unworthy manner. If you got some stuff going on in here, deal with it. Confess it. Repent it. Leave it there and come up and share in the elements with us. So I'm just going to ask you to take some time to pray. Then I'll bring us in and pray together. So will you pray?